to the KC City Church Audio Podcast. We pray you enjoy this following sermon. Amen. Well, I, I love what uh, Melissa said there, that we need to make room uh, for God. It's, it's so important, and that really is an essential essential part of the message today and and, in any message that you listen to are you making room in your heart uh, for God are you making room to actually receive from God what he would give to you today Um, I hope that that is the case Uh, so as we prepare to look at the parable of the unmerciful servant today uh, we're we're looking uh, at just the majesty of God's word Uh, we're going to see that God alone is 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 the righteous judge. He's the only one capable of judging rightly every single time. He's the only one. And our heart condition, the condition of our hearts, quite often disqualify us from being able to judge rightly. And when we don't judge rightly, in the end we judge wrongly. And we can judge others, sadly, uh, and judge them poorly, judge them wrongly. And in the end, we can do great harm to people that God loves and cares for very much. So the parable of the unmerciful servant, as Alan was reading there, you noticed some strange math at the start of it. You know, Peter was uh, saying to Jesus, hey, um, how many times should I forgive uh, my brother when he does something wrong against me? And Peter was really thinking he was coming up with a great number that was going to just show how great his mercy and his kindness was, and he threw seven out there. Now, numbers have significance in Scripture. Seven was a significant number uh, to Peter, seven being a number of completion. Um, in scripture. But Jesus comes back to Peter and says a a different math equation to him. He says 70 times 7. Now that has a very specific meaning in scripture. 70 times 7 comes from a conversation between Gabriel the angel and Daniel the prophet who was in Babylon. And it is very specific. I want to read to you from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. I just want to explain this math equation because it directs us to the point in human history, in world history, where justice, final justice, will be meted out. There is a day where final justice will be meted out. You know, as we look at this, I, I just want to assure you for all of those who today, especially if you consider what's happened with George Floyd, the cries for justice and then these strange acts of injustice that we see playing out on the streets of America and around the world, people crying for justice. And in crying for justice, committing acts of injustice, that is an all-too-human condition that we see. And so when we look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, this 70 times 7, Jesus is pointing to this specifically. So in verse 24, 70 sevens, Gabriel tells Daniel, are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, 
to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So what is God saying there? Look, you know, one of the, the underlying foundations of our cries for justice when we see injustice in the world one of those underlying cries is god if you're real why don't you do something about it why doesn't god strike that person down who hurt that child why doesn't god do something about sex slavery and sex trafficking why doesn't god do something about spouse abuse why doesn't god do something about these injustices if he exists and the answer to that is mercy we're in a period right now of mercy and grace there is coming a period where all of these things are going to be finished it's going to be done with jesus is pointing to that time and his answer to peter with 70 times seven he's really pointing to the judgment seat of christ when jesus christ sits on his throne and he judges rightly and he judges justly every person who stands before him now this 70 times 7 is a specific number of years weeks of years seven years in a row 70 weeks of years you do the math you calculate it it's 173,880 days a phenomenal number and you can start counting from the day that King Artaxerxes put out the decree that the Jews, the nation of Israel, could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. There was a specific day in history, March the 14th, 445 B.C. was that day that that decree went out. And if you count 173,880 days, that is the day that Jesus had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was hailed as king. We call it Palm Sunday. And they, they welcomed him into the city. They declared him uh, to be king. This is such an important time. But it shows you that God is on a timeline. He's working his plan to set everything right. If your heart cries for justice, I want to assure your heart, God has a plan to bring justice, but it's his justice. It's pure justice. It's not the justice of man, which is flawed. The justice of man that commits further injustices. The justice of man that doesn't see everything, that doesn't have all of the facts. No, it's God's justice. Nothing's hidden from God. So God will judge rightly, and he's going to set all things right. This is an encouraging time. I want to encourage you, but that is what that 70 times 7 is referring to there. And you can read about the last week of seven years in the book of Revelation. It's called the tribulation period. And we're closer now to it than we've ever been. Global uh, phenomenon, social upheaval, all of these things point that the day is close, that it's close at hand. Now is the time for us to make room for God, like Melissa shared before. 
So before we take a look uh, again at the parable of the unmerciful servant, I want to take you to Romans 14, verses 9 to 13. talks here about judging other believers, judging our brothers and sisters. And I hope that if you're part of the body of Christ today, that you will take this to heart. We need to be very careful in how we judge one another. Verse 10 says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. You know, on that day when we all stand, and every last one of us, whether you have believed in Jesus Christ and being born again, or whether you're an atheist and you don't even believe God exists, I assure you that all of us will stand before him at his judgment seat, and he will judge us rightly. And on that day, we won't be folding our arms in contempt to God. We will be bowing our knee to him, and we will openly confess and admit the things that we've done wrong. The only difference between those who will receive mercy on that day and those who won't the only sin for which you really can't be forgiven is the sin of not accepting the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he died to pay for your sin debt. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. Jesus came to pay your debt. The parable of the unmerciful servant is as much a story and a teaching about the free gift, the mercy that God gives, and then what we're responsible to do with it. But it is God's mercy being given. You can't mistake it. Verse 12, so each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. What's the summary there? God is just. We are not. And we hurt others when we try to play God. Melissa was right. We need to make room for God in our lives. We need to make room for God to sit between us and our relationships with others, with other people, particularly those who are of the household of faith. So when we look at the parable of the unmerciful servant, you've got that equation there pointing to that final day of judgment where we all stand before our God and Jesus opens it up and explains it with this parable. I'm going to read it again, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. On that final day, God is settling accounts. He's settling accounts. As he began to settle a settlement, uh, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. This was more than a lifetime's wages. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That's justice. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. This is humility. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He didn't just give him time to pay it off. He canceled it. 
That's what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. In other words, the Lamb of God come to pay all of the debts of everyone, all of your sin debt. You're accountable for it. Jesus came to pay for it. Why? To give you mercy that you could be the servant before the master on his knees asking for mercy and actually receiving mercy. Not being given time to pay, but having it wiped out completely. That is the gospel message. This is the gospel, the good news. This is good news. This is good news. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Was this servant faking it before God? Was this a fake it till you make it kind of thing? Yeah, it was. Certainly this servant had made no room in his life for his master. No, this, this servant was begging for time, received more than that, received mercy, and yet, because he hadn't done it with a genuine heart, he was just trying to buy another day. How often are we just trying to buy another day with God and he wants to give us eternity? He wants to wipe it out completely, but will we receive it? His servants witnessed this. If you think that the injustice that you commit, your judgment that you pass on others goes unnoticed. No, it's noticed. It's noticed by others, but it's also noticed by God, and he sees it in every detail. We'll see that in further scriptures that we're going to look at. His fellow servants, his fellow servant, this servant that was grabbed by the throat fell on his knees before his fellow servant you could call him his brother be patient with me and i will pay it back exact same pleading the exact same request for mercy but he refused instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt and when the other servants saw what had happened they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened Well, the master already knows. Our Heavenly Father already knows the sin that you and I so easily commit. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours. You begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus concludes with verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. If we receive such great mercy from God, when our sins are so great that we can't even count them and we receive such great mercy from a God who sees all of it, knows every detail, and yet we cannot give mercy to someone else who owes us so much less. 
who is indebted to us for so much less, so little. God is just. God defines what good is. God is just. He not only defines what what is good, but he requires it of us. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 reveals this to us about God. This parable that Jesus is teaching, I hope you're seeing, it's consistent throughout Scripture from Daniel all the way to Revelation. And in Micah 6, we get a little outline. Micah 6 verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, compassion, and kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's God who defines what good is and also requires the good of those who have received it. Do justice love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I love that. To walk humbly with your God, like Melissa said, to make room for God in every moment, in every place that you go. Whether it's a dark valley or a mountaintop, no matter what you're doing, to walk humbly with your God. Those who walk humbly with their God, who practice mercy, and who do justice as God defines it. On that final day, when we stand before him, we will receive mercy. We will receive forgiveness. There'll be no debt required of us. Our debt has been paid. Our debt has been paid, not because of something we've done but because of the one who did it for us and our acceptance of it. Oh, if you're listening today, the only sin for which you cannot be forgiven is not receiving the free gift of salvation. It's the only sin. God can't forgive it. You're not a robot. He can't program you to receive his forgiveness. No, you got to do that by an act of your will. God gave you a free will heard it put this way there'll be nobody who goes to hell who didn't choose to go there oh we make choices every day every moment we should be careful when we're tempted to judge one another when we're tempted to judge others for God is a God of justice and you and I are not capable of being just like him Isaiah 59 verse 2 gives us insight into the consistency of our hearts. I want to take you on a little journey into our hearts. Scripture reveals to us the true nature of ourselves. Isaiah 59 2 reveals that you and I have a heart condition. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. But God hears cries for mercy. Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. You can look these up later. Write them down. Instructs us not to judge. Don't judge that you be not judged. That's a famous verse. Sadly, people tend to quote it whether they believe in God or not, whether they've read the Bible or not. They'll quote that. They'll throw it in your face, but only at a time where they feel they're being judged. The rest of the world, most people, and including many believers, will only use that line when they feel they're being judged. They won't use it when they're judging others. 
Oh, we need to use it when we're tempted to judge others. It's an instruction not to judge. It's not a free pass when you feel like you're being judged. It goes on to reveal to us that the measure with which you measure out justice, it's going to be meted back to you. The exact same lack of mercy in the application of justice that this unjust servant applied was the exact same absence of mercy that we see justice applied to this unjust servant. That passage in Matthew 7 goes on to talk about how can you, how can I, help someone get a toothpick out of their eye when I've got a board hanging out of my own eye. I need to get the board out of my eye and then I might be of some assistance to the person with a toothpick in their eye. I need to be very careful when I'm trying to help others. I might just be judging them. Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 says that we condemn ourselves when we do this. Read it for yourself. Romans 2 verses 1 to 11. No excuse or defense or justification will be provided for anyone who does this. This is what happens when we judge others. I love what the Apostle Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He reveals here that we're not even capable of really rightly judging ourselves. I do not even judge myself, starting at the end of verse 3. I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, and yet I'm not justified by this. He's saying, look, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong against anybody. I think as I'm writing this, then I'm, I'm pretty clear today. I don't believe I've committed any injustice against anyone. Nothing pops to mind. And yet, God who sees everything knows different, knows all of the details. So we can't be justified by our own idea that we haven't harmed anyone else. But he who judges me is the Lord. Verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. We're back to 70 weeks of seven years and a time of judgment yet to come. We're coming up to that time. Paul is saying, suspend your judgment. <laughs> There'll be ultimate judgment, true judgment, righteous judgment, applied with mercy to those who have received it. There's an appointed time. Suspend your judgment until then, and on that day, you'll receive justice rather than having to dispense it out. God says God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the very counsels of your heart, those whispers in your heart against others, those lies, those scripts that you just replay and replay and replay. Those things that cause not only you to stumble, but also stumble those around you whom God loves very much. You can start to see the condition of our hearts and how ill-equipped you and I actually are to judge and judge rightly. Let's take a look at the thoughts and intents of our heart. What do we do about it? You could feel like, Kev, you're not leaving me with what much hope. I've just got a day where I'm going to stand before God. What do I do today? What do I do now? Well, we're doing it right now. It's happening right now. 
Scripture says that the Word of God, which is live in Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13, it says, for the Word of God is living and powerful. We've been looking at the Word of God today. You've been hearing it. Have you been receiving it? Is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Your soul being your mind, your will, your emotions, and your spirit, your eternal self can separate down to that. And of the joints and marrow, your very physical being, and is a discerner <laughs> of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When I look into God's word, God's word looks into me. When I listen to God's word, it resonates and the lies in my heart are exposed for what they are. We need to be in God's word in this time. Bible says as we get close to the last days that there'll be a lie. Satan is the master of lies, the father of lies. In other words, he authors them. He originates them. He does it to deceive the nations and to deceive people. Why? He wants to kill you. He hates your guts. You're made in the image of God, and he hates God. He can't get to God, but he can get to you. Oh, we're going to need to stay in the Word of God. And Scripture reveals to us that the Holy Spirit, as we've been going through this message today, the Holy Spirit is here with me and there with you and speaking to your heart about your situation, speaking to your heart about where you are, about what you've done wrong. Allow the Word to speak to you, to come and tune and correct we're created to be more than we actually are. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, with reverential fear of a God who will judge the living and the dead on that final day. He wants you to stand before him and give you mercy. He wants to give you mercy. That's the gift. That's the gospel. It's a choice and you get to make it. It's your choice. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I don't have to give account of Melissa, of Pastor Larry, of Shami, of my wife, of my children. I have to give an account of me, Kevin. Flawed. A habitual mistake maker. I have to give an account of me. I need his mercy. I'll need it then and I need it today. It's going to set me free to an eternity without the burden or stain of sin on that day. And today it sets me free from the habits and the cycles of sin that seem to stalk me everywhere I go, even when I sit alone. I'm never alone. God is always with me. But this sin nature that I was born to is also here with me. Verses 14 and 16 should give you hope. And if you haven't asked Jesus, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't received the free gift of salvation, it should give you opportunity. Seeing that when we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. Trust me, we need God now, but we're going to need God on that day of justice. There'll be no lies before him. That will be your greatest time of need, and you will find mercy and grace on that day. If you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, your sins will have been paid for by his shed blood, but you will stand before him. Just as we read earlier in Romans, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Bertrand Russell was an atheist, a rather persuasive atheist, died recently. He now knows the truth. But Bertrand Russell was asked, what are you going to say if you die and arrive before God and... And he says to Bertrand, why, why didn't you believe? He said, I will ask him, sir, why did you hide? Why was I not able to see you and perceive you? And do you know what God's going to say to him on that day? Bertrand, the birds, the sky, the stars, the trees, all of the living things preach the gospel, preach the fact that I exist, a God of order, a God of structure. Not a God of atheism, not a God of chaos, but a God of order and structure and justice and mercy. As well as Bertrand Russell was well-versed in the scriptures, he just chose to reject the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. There'll be nobody folding their arms and say, why did you hide? Because God will say, it was obvious. It was obvious. Let's look at King David as we wrap up. King David is an interesting guy. He said he was a man after God's own heart. He was a real example for us to follow, and yet he was one of the greatest sinners in the history of mankind. You wouldn't believe that. You would think like, oh, he's just like the gold standard for behavior and for getting it right. But actually, in many ways, he was the gold standard for getting it wrong. David, uh, after he had become successful, ascended to the throne, he was a great king. He had led uh, the nation of Israel into a time of great prosperity. They were secure. They were safe. And while the armies were out fighting battles and defending Israel, David decided to stay home one day, not to go to war, not to lead his troops. And in that day, he was tempted. I imagine him walking past the window in his high palace and looking down, and he saw a woman named Bathsheba bathing on her roof. That was private. She didn't think any of the men were around. She wasn't trying to tempt anyone. 
David should have been on that battlefield. And lust was formed in his heart. He committed adultery with her, had her brought to him. And then when she fell pregnant, David realized, oh, I have to cover my sin. I now need to lie to cover it. He formed a plot to deceive, to deceive her husband, who was one of his military leaders. When that did not work, he formed a plot to murder her husband, all to cover his sin, all to cover his lie, all to evade justice. And on top of that, he was willing to judge others as guilty, even putting them to death for the very sins that he himself had committed. That is a picture of you and I. When I judge someone else, I'm really judging the very things that in my heart I do. And before you say, no, Kev, I'm, I'm pretty good. I've never murdered anybody. Jesus says if you've held anger and hatred in your heart towards somebody, you've already committed murder. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, or a man for that matter with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You're guilty of the crime within your heart. See the standard that this God of justice holds us to? Do you see our need for mercy and for a savior? King David, in Psalm 51, what happened to him? This is a psalm about King David's restoration. The fact that it's recorded means that King David uh, allowed as the king for his sins to be made known. We've got them recorded here. We've got his heart plea before the Lord. Him, the servant, the unmerciful servant, coming before his master. Psalm 51, I'll just look at a few bits of it. Starting in verses 4 to 6 will be the first bit. Everything I did, I did right in front of you, for you saw it all against you, and you above all have I sinned. Everything you say to me is infallibly true, and your judgment conquers me. Catch that. Allow God's justice, his judgment, his standard to conquer your heart today. Verse 5, Lord, I have been a sinner from birth, and from the moment my mother conceived me, I know that you delight to set your truth deep in my spirit. So come into the hidden places of my heart and teach me wisdom. What did Melissa say earlier? Can you make room for God? You know, don't make room on the couch. Make room in your heart for God. He wants to come into those hidden places. Indeed, he delights to put his truth, his standard of right and wrong deep within your heart. He does it through the word of God. He does it as an act of his Holy Spirit, all to teach you wisdom that you would be wise in this life. And going on to verse 8 to 13, let's have a look there in Psalm 51. You can read the whole thing for yourself or recommend that you do. The place within me you have crushed will rejoice with your healing touch. Yes, 
There's a little bit of dying that has to be involved. There's a little bit of discomfort and pain involved when God comes into our hearts because you see, you and I are far sicker than we believe. We are far more ill than we actually believe. And God wants to come into that place and crush the sickness. And he wants to replace it with rejoicing in our hearts, turning it into a song. Hide my sins from your face. Erase all my guilt by your saving grace, your mercy. Create a new, clean heart within me. Fill me with pure thoughts, with holy desires, ready to please you. That's a renovation. (laughs) People have been renovating their houses during coronavirus. How's your heart? God wants to renovate. He's a master renovator. Jesus was a carpenter in this life, but he was a creator of the universe at the beginning. And he's the restorer of all things, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end for you and I. Verse 12, hold me close to you with a willing spirit that obeys whatever you say. Then I can show to other guilty ones how loving and merciful you are. They will find their way back home to you, knowing that you will forgive them. See, King David's going to walk out of his time before his master, having humbled himself before his master, begged for mercy, received it, being transformed by it to go out and to do justice to others, not his own justice, but God's justice, not the world's justice, but God's justice to others, to do justice, to give them mercy, having received such rich mercy, having been forgiven of so much. King David, murder, adultery, deception, lying, falsely condemning others, all of that forgiven of all of it, restored to a place of rejoicing and right, how could he not go and give mercy to those who deserve death? How could he not go and give mercy to those who deserve prison? How could he not go and stand between those who would stone and those who perhaps should be stoned? We see Jesus apply that mercy. The woman caught in the act of adultery. I imagine Jesus kneeling down in that scene, and like all good teachers of the time, he was writing in the dirt. I believe he was writing the very sins of the men who were holding the rocks. And they dropped their rocks, and they walked away. You and I need to drop our rocks. We need to drop them. Oh, we need to drop them. Jesus is writing your sins. What sins is he writing on your heart today? Come on. What's he saying to you? This is your chance. You can walk free. You can walk free, forgiven the recipient of mercy and the very vessel of mercy that God would send out into this world. The injustices of the world that we see, you can go and do justice and be mercy. But it requires humility. It's impossible without humility to walk humbly with your God. I pray that you would be able to walk humbly with your God from this day, that you would be able to experience 
that transformation just like King David, that your life would become a testimony, a pointer, a big neon sign pointing to the mercy and the justice of a loving God who will judge the living and the dead on an appointed day. When you wonder why he hasn't already done it, the answer is that Jesus is seated on the mercy seat, dispensing mercy. This dispensation of mercy has gone twice as long as any other dispensation that we see in Scripture. God is rich in mercy, and he desires that none should perish. Well, just as we close, I'd like to invite you, if you've never thought about giving your life to Jesus, maybe this, this message today is speaking to you. Maybe there's something stirring within your heart. You know, Christianity is not a collection of rule-following people. Christianity is a collection of broken uh, and criminal people who have received grace and mercy and forgiveness as a free gift. Nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to earn it. To receive it, it requires humility. You have to acknowledge. I'm going to give you the ABCs of salvation. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. That you judge wrongly. That you are a vessel of injustice in this world too. You have to acknowledge that. If this message has convicted your heart today, this is your chance to acknowledge that. Not to me, but to God. So A in the ABCs is acknowledge that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Welcome to the club. B stands for believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came, that he died, that he was raised back to life again, and that today he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven on the mercy seat, listening to your cries for mercy. Confess. Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. That is the C. Confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior before others. Tell somebody about it. If you would invite Jesus into your heart today, you can just pray this simple prayer with me. It's not a magic prayer. It's a simple prayer. It is a simple act of acknowledging, believing, and confessing what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. So let's bow our heads. Let's bow our hearts. You can just say this prayer with me. God, I acknowledge that I've sinned, that I've done wrong. There's too many for me to list here, but you know my heart. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask for mercy. I believe that Jesus came and that he died and that he rose again that he died in my place to forgive my sins, that his blood washes away my sins and pays my debt. And I believe that as he rose again, that he cleared away from me to eternal salvation. I thank you for your mercy and for your forgiveness. And I confess you, Jesus, as my Lord and as my Savior. I give 
my life to you. I commit to walk humbly with you. I ask you to be with me in every moment. I ask you to come and live on the inside of me and to begin to change me from the inside out. Come and renovate my heart. I make room for you today. In Jesus' name I pray. And all together, we said amen. Amen. Thank you.